Welcome to the fourth episode of the comic show on Monkeys Fighting Robots. This week, we are going to review Violent Love, Issue 6 from Image Comics, as well as DC's Dark Days, The Casting. We are also talking with comic reporter Gary Maloney about the Marvel Comics Black Bolt series and Small Press Day in the UK, Dublin, Ireland, all over Europe, maybe? Nope, UK and Ireland. No France? No, no France. No France. Joining me in the conversation is my co-host, editor of the comic book section on Monkey's Fighting Robots, Anthony Composto. What up? Uh, hey, guys, if you like the show, please subscribe on Blog Talk Radio. Subscribe on iTunes. If you're an Android user like myself, subscribe on Stitcher. And uh, feedback is always appreciated. Please give us comments. Let us know what you think of the show and what we should be reading. Okay, this first book, Violent Love. Yeah. The cover, I, I was like, like, this is this is pretty good. And then I got a, like a few pages in. Is this did they give us the actual copy of the book, or was this a an advanced advanced copy of the book? No, this book comes out this, you know, Wednesday, July twelfth, the day that this episode is airing, the book is out in stores now. Because Why? there's blue lines in the first few panels. I noticed that. I, Did that, they I'm forget to sure erase? Part of the style. Did no, they forget sure to erase that? No, no. That's that's because that's what artists use to start the page with, and then they erase the blue afterwards. But it doesn't move past that flashback sequence. It's only in that flashback sequence, those first few pages. Then there's no more blue lines. I understand. I think that. it's just for style. Okay. As a person that critiques the medium. I don't I don't know. Should have went over it with a different color pen and then erased that. But with that <laughs> being said, I love this book. And I haven't yeah. re- I haven't read the first 5 issues. This issue is the epitome of what I talk about when I talk about comic books and what they need to do. That cuz you read it and there was enough breaks in it to where it's speedy and then it has a cliffhanger ending where you're like, oh, "I have to read the next issue right now." And now you can tell everybody what I'm talking about. Yeah, so Violent Love is this crime romance story, they call it. It is in the vein of, like, Bonnie and Clyde or Natural Born Killers. You have two bank robbers with just, like, incredibly pulpy names, like Daisy Jane and Rock Bradley, I think his last name is. First name is Rock. And they're bank robbers. They are trying to get this gangster Johnny Nails who killed Daisy's father. Uh, the first arc is all like, you know, the setup, you know, the backstory on how that happened and how they came together. Now this is the start of arc two. It's a new uh, arc, a jumping on point. And this is now they're in the crux of their adventure. And there's a lot of time jumps going back and forth. Matt was talking about, you know, the ending that they they go back and forth from the quote unquote, well, the past in the 70s up until the, the 80s. Yeah, no, where... this issue right here starts in 1951, and then it goes to 1987, then it goes to 1972, and then it goes back to 1987 at the end. Where Daisy is still on her hunt. And you have not read the first five issues. If you did, you'd know. Throughout the first five issues, every time they cut to the future, you didn't know Daisy was alive. Like, they start issue one telling the story. Wait, you just like, ruined real- it for everybody. No, because this issue's out. This issue's out now. We're talking now. 
they 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 start out the first issue. It's very Romeo and Juliet when they're just like, oh, these are like two star-crossed lovers who went out in a blaze of glory. And then you read the first five issues, and at the end of issue five is when you find out that Daisy uh, is still alive in the '80s and still on her on her mission. I love this book. I love movies like Natural Born Killers and Bonnie and Clyde. And like one of my favorite parts about this book is how it's just it's it's cinematic as hell. Like, like it is just Victor Santos is on the art and just his, his art. He has like, he's mastered visual storytelling. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's cinematic. And you can almost remove the words and still follow along perfectly. And this issue is called Bastards of Young. And it's written by Frank J. Barbary. Barbary, Barbieri, one of those. I enjoyed yeah. it. I it's it well. It, this issue opens up like a film. You, you mentioned cinema, cinematic, and these are things that we're going to keep talking about. Uh, but again, like the artwork is kind of shoddy to begin with, but then the story takes over. Just the storytelling, even with the storytelling of the artwork, and then you're like, okay, I'm in this. I'm in it completely, one hundred percent. And then you're like, okay, what is going on? And See, the person, the first guy, the, the, we're in Texas, 1987. Is that guy at the desk? Is that is that the bad guy? No, and that's the thing is I don't know who that is. He's new. This this new intro with the guy in the 50s and then the 80s, no idea who that is. They, they call him Mr. Newman, unless that's like Johnny Nails' new alias or something. I don't know. I don't know, because I don't know this Johnny Nails. I don't know him at all. Well, I gotta go back. You, luckily, you can go and you can pick up Volume 1 of Violent Love, which uh, actually features a, a nice pull quote from Monkeys Fighting Robots on the back cover. I probably should read the book that has a pull quote from Monkeys Fighting Robots on it. Yeah, you probably should. It, it It's great. And you said that the, the art is shoddy, which I don't necessarily... I don't agree with. I don't agree, I wouldn't call it shoddy. I like the art. I will say that was... A little turnoff about this issue for me is that I feel like the art was stronger during the first five issues. There were some moments in this book where it kind of wavered for me, but I still love it. It's just, it, it's it's pulpy, like it just it feels like a like a, a an old you know pulp fiction kind of comic. There's a pulpy stylistic feel to this, and I don't mean to insult any artist because this person is actually putting out a comic book and they're selling a comic book and it's a well written comic book and the art works for it but i'm of the 90s kid i'm a 90s kid with image comics and the artwork was king as far as what i liked victor santos is a stylized artist and the only stylized artist that i loved was sam keith the guy who drew the max the max oh i thought you were gonna say todd mcfarland no because i mean talk i mean talk stylized (sighs) really the 90s the 90s were all about stylized art man come on no it wasn't man it was not stylized it was not style it wasn't sam keith todd mcfarland didn't have a crazy style that redefined spider-man for the next two three decades before todd mcfarland things were boring and generic 
Right. So you don't think in like 1990, 1990, 1992, when Todd McFarlane came on the scene, you don't think if someone had a podcast like ours, they'd be saying like, oh, this is stylized and stuff. No, they were going to they would use a lot of F-bombs about how awesome it was. (laughs) Not until he got to Spawn, where he didn't have to be in the whole box of Marvel. You know how hard it was for him probably to pitch like, hey, guys, I am going to totally revolutionize what you do with Spider-Man and how you draw him. (laughs) I'm going to give him big eyes. I'm going to make him all these crazy. And I'm going to webbing. I'm going to like actually put detail in the webbing. Once Todd McFarlane got to Image Comics, that's where his style started to come out. Like his noses, his ears, his eyes, like how he did a person truly like amped up. His Sam and Twitch stuff is amazing. Uh, all his characters are pretty amazing. And that's when he actually like evolved and stylized his art. But he was still stuck in a box when he was working for Marvel. But Sam Keith, on the other hand, who did the Max, that guy was stylized from the beginning. Like, whether it was how he drew women, he he figured out a way of drawing this, like, frumpy, cute girl, grungy. He figured out how to draw grunge, and it was awesome. Yeah, I, I just pulled up. I mean, I've seen the Max. I just pulled it up. I I don't. I mean, this is way more stylized than Victor Santos is doing on Violent Love. This is like way more over the top. Well, that's I don't really, I, I wouldn't really make the comparison here. Well, no, I'm saying, that, well, comic books are a spectrum. Like you have stylized over here, and then you have like another uh, Y axis or an X axis of like how stylized and or wherever it goes, realistic stylization or pulpy situation. There's a million different axes to style when it comes to art but with what's going on with violent love is what we envision pulp to look like i don't think if you brought out a pulp comic book now like from the 30s or 40s i don't think it'd look anything like this oh no absolutely not no but this is a modernization of pulpiness to it the backgrounds is where it loses me. There's tons of detail. Like, I'm on the one scene where they're, she's eating a cheeseburger or a hamburger, and she is gorgeously in focus. And then if you look at the patron in the back right-hand corner, it's just a quick little stick finger drawing. And I'm like, ah, oh, either don't have that person in there or just put a little bit more detail into it. Now that we can, like, zoom in, and I don't know if this person does digital or um, or does it, you know, real, like on pen and paper. But you can zoom in and put as much detail as you want. And I understand we're all under time constraints and everything like that. But there needs to be some stuff to it. And you know when I talk about, we talk about Kubert being a little sketchy. This is way more sketchy than... Yeah, but this is a crime comic. Like this is where I want this sketch to be. Is in like a in a crime noir story is where I want the sketch. Mm. There's sketch. Don't don't you don't you growl <laughs> at me. It was more of a hmm, but I'm losing my voice, so it came out as a growl. But it was me just thinking. <laughs> uh and that's what I was trying to explain. Like old school Wolverine when he doesn't have his shirt off, when he has it when he has his shirt off and it looks sketchy. And I was like, no, guys, that's back hair. That's not sketch. That's back hair. So, like, Wolverine's supposed to be the hairiest dude in the world. And then we got a pretty boy to play him in the movies with no back hair. 
Oh, don't you don't you dare disgrace the name of Hugh Jackman on this podcast, <laughs> sir. Especially not not in the same year as Logan. Are you insane? No, I already said in uh, the movie show podcast that Logan is still my favorite movie so far of 2017. So I have so much love dare, for that. You dare film. disgrace, pretty boy. But you know, it's not a very accurate portrayal of the hero because he's got a lot of back hair in the comic books. Well, I don't think they you know, they had a really hard time finding an actual mutant to play Wolverine. So <laughs> um, I did I did my, like the bike the and let's transition back to this comic book. Yeah. I did like the bank heist. I thought it was really good. Uh, the action in this thing is is pretty much over the top. I I have it more in a pulp fiction category. The way things were bouncing around, I was like, this is very pulp fiction, but we're all in the same thing when we talk about true romance and and the other films you mentioned. It was very, and especially that scene where they're in the di- the diner eating the burgers and having the shakes. It was very, very like the opening scene of Pulp Fiction yes. with Honey Bunny, where and she puts the gun on the table and stuff. It was I, I got the same vibe from it. I love the bank heist. My favorite panel in the book, I think, is probably the end of that heist where she shot the guy. She's sta- her and Rock are standing over him, and it's a very simple panel. It's a whole page, but. It's interesting to me because where Santos takes it from a low angle shot, like you got the guy on the floor, he's completely in shadow. And then you have Daisy and rock standing high, just in light from a low angle shot. And like in cinema, when you're doing something like that, that's for the hero. Like you're showing a hero, a hero's pose when you go from below, because you want them to seem big and imposing and they're in light and the light's hitting them perfectly. And I thought it was a really, a really interesting choice to make this statement because yeah, they're the protagonist and we should be rooting for them. But at the end, they're killers, they're killers and bank robbers still. Right. Well, that's the whole awesome thing about comic books is you can write it any way you want and you can visualize it any way you want. I know I'm giving Victor a lot of shit on his sketchiness, but what he dominates on is his color and his inks. Because the, the picture that you're talking about, there's a almost like chalk dusting on it to where it's like almost like, you know, when they do your fingerprints? Yeah. Like that powder or when they dust for fingerprints. like So it's almost like we're the detective reading the book of the crimes and there's the fingerprints on the book and that dusting and there's like more evidence in there and like it's just you can go as deep as you want with it but it he's doing some really awesome stuff with watercolors and a couple other things i can't even figure out what's going on with the backgrounds like the just the coloring of the book is amazing like the last after the panel that you're talking about then it changes and goes to the epilogue in 1987 and then the color change but mm-hmm when you have the panel stacked up, they still flow together because that, that, that fingerprint dust falls over the epilogue and still blends into the new panel. So time is still connected. It's, it's so weird that how much colors can influence a comic book. I love, I love what you just said. And it's actually funny because if you read the first five issues, you kind of find out that the backstory, the, the, the story in the seventies, it, at least in the first arc, it is being told by a detective. It's like the detective that followed them and was like on their case in the 70s. He's the guy now in 18, 1987 telling this story to someone. So 
there is that added layer of depth that you just said. It's like a detective telling the story and you have like this fingerprint dust over it. So I don't know if that's what Santos was going for, but you just kind of wove the web together in a way that blew my mind. <laughs> and that's, I don't know if you could just hear that thunder. That was some loud thunder. Yeah, no, that just rolled through. Uh, that happened <laughs> That happened last week. Just so everybody knows, we are recording this in the state of Florida. And come summertime, the thunder rolls through. And I just heard it again. And uh-huh. just before just before I came in to my St. Pete recording studio, a.k.a. my garage, we have a fireplace and it's an aluminum tube that goes up the chimney. And it catches the thunder, and I we heard a good sixty second rolling thunder, where it just went, <laughs> and we're like, wait a second, because it, it started off where things were kind of like shaking, because like the the thunder was so loud, and it just kept going, and I was like, is this the end of days? Like I'm like seriously like, sixty second thunder starts freaking you out at about twenty three seconds, so there were still thirty seven more seconds of freaking out on the thunder. <laughs> Your your daughter is gonna grow up strong, man. She's not gonna fear anything because she's like growing up in this thunderous, you know, insanity. She's I fear nothing. How many monkeys um, you giving this baby? I am giving this baby. Um, I'm gonna say four, four out of five monkeys. I liked it a lot. It was a great return to this series. Um, I really enjoyed it, but uh, it's also not the most eventful. Like I felt like I. I got to, and maybe that's good. You should always want more. But like, I got to that bank heist, and I was like, "Oh, really? Like, it's over now?" Like, I felt like for for a new story arc, they almost could have gone bigger with it. Interesting. For me, not knowing everything, I thought this was a really fast paced book, and a lot of stuff happened, and the action kind of hops around while they're, you know, I'm like, okay, they're eating food, they're robbing banks, and it just bounces, and you got this other person where I'm like, I, I don't know what's going on, but then the ending. I think I got to give this like 4.25 robots. Oh man, see I was going to do that. I was going to give it 4. Point, I was honestly got going to give it 4.25 robots and then last week you gave me hell over my decimal point rating. So I was like I'm just going to I'm going to go solid. Don't let one. me influence the rating that you want to give on your comic books. This is your emotion. Like I read this book today and I was just like Oh, this is good. I I like these two characters right away, uh, you know. And I was like, "There's some mystery in the background, and they're crazy." And then you get to the end, and it was like, "Oh fuck!" What I do want to say before we move on is uh, I want to mention the backup story in this comic. I don't know if you read it or not. There's a backup story from artist Jamie Jones and writer Ryan Ferrier. And Jamie Jones is actually a Florida artist. Tampa, he's, he's, Tampa boy. Yeah, Tampa boy. Um. I've been loving the backup story, and again, it's something that's been going on since the first arc about a, a young artist who kind of gets entangled into working for the mob, which is another like crime story. Um, I really like it a lot, and that that's another reason that just makes me look forward to Violent Love every month is because I want to see this uh, this backup story, which it, it's interesting because it has nothing to do with the rest of the story. Um, it's so interesting that a, an unrelated backup story can have me hooked so hard. And Jamie Jones's artwork is really phenomenal. Like we talked about like Sam Keith stylized work and we talked about Todd McFarlane and Jamie Jones is probably a hybrid of them both. If you had to quickly look at his artwork and be like, oh, who is this? It's like, I see a little Todd McFarlane. I see a little Sam Keith. 
Like, this is amazing stuff. He did a Supergirl print for me, like, two free comic book days ago. And it's gorgeous. And nobody follows him on Twitter. Follow him on Twitter. You know, yeah, we follow, like we him follow on Facebook. Him. I mean, like, it's he is one of the nicest guys in the industry. He's a, he's a bow tie artist. Like, yeah. he wears a bow tie. And super nice guy. Like him on Facebook. Like him on Twitter. And his Instagram. Artwork. Follow him on Instagram. I'm not a grammar, dude. I'm not a grammar. You gotta be a grammar. You gotta be a Kelsey grammar. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not doing it, man. I'm not doing the gram. I'm not. Well, doing, you don't have to, but anyone else should follow. Jamie I'm not Jones. doing your little snappy chats. You know, <laughs> whatever you guys are doing, your hippity hops. But uh, we, um, Jamie Jones' have, work is good. Is we have Brooke, my girlfriend, has a Spider Gwen, like a sketch card that he did. I didn't meet him. I'm glad to hear that he's a nice guy. But we were in Port St. Lucie for Met Spring training. And we stopped into a comic shop, and the guy had like a deck of Jamie Jones sketch cards that he must have done for him. So we we snagged one. That's how I got to know uh, of Jamie Jones. So, yes. Spider Gwen, yep. another excessive character, not needed in the Marvel universe. All right, we're not we're not getting off track. Not going to do it. Not going in the wormhole this week, Matt. Oh, really? You get to talk about the Vision. I'm not allowed to talk about Spider Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's just yes, exactly. You got it right. I'm glad you I'm glad you're following how this works. How did how did I lose out on this deal? Each week we want to bring you an interview either from a beat reporter, from Monkeys Fighting Robots, or a comic book creator. This week we have one of the writers of Monkeys Fighting Robots, Gary Maloney, Skyping in across the giant pond. We're in the United States. Where are you coming from, Gary? I'm coming from Dublin in Ireland, and it is currently five past one in the morning. So needless to say, I am hopped up on coffee and raring to go, lads. And I love that your your Skype video is so dark right now. I mean, you, you have the whole entire ambiance set that it's one o'clock in the morning for you. Oh, it's just committed. <laughs> this past weekend was a great event, and I'm not really familiar with it just because there's so many events going on, but what is Small Press Day? Okay, so Small Press Day is it's a new event. Uh, essentially, this is the second year, and what it is is that across Ireland and the UK, sponsored by Forbidden Planet and a number of other shops, they get local creators to do showcases in their communities. So they might be doing exhibitions, they might be doing workshops, panels, selling their wares. There are guys who are doing micropress self-published stuff who probably put in their own money to get this stuff out there to you and have to organize their own printer and their own art and sometimes paying artists out of their own pocket to be able to get this stuff out there and it's just an opportunity for them to showcase their wares for them to show what they're doing and to show what comics are capable of because often what you see in these events is that they're doing things you might not expect in comic books they're doing something interesting with panels they're doing something interesting from a story perspective, things that wouldn't get mainstream traction or wouldn't get published by some of the major outlets. But because it's something that they're putting their own money into, they can basically do whatever they want. They're their own editors and there's no block to them. So there's, there's a comic for sort of every sensibility at these sort of events. What kind of creators come out to the events? Like, could you give us some names? I know, uh, I know you got quite a few creators over there with you in Ireland. I know you're friends with Declan Shalvey a little bit. Who else uh, is coming out to these friends things? Is, friends is a strong term. Friends, uh, okay. You know Declan Shalvey, which is pretty cool. 
See, everyone in the Irish comic scene kind of knows everyone. Because, so, funny you mentioned Declan Shalvey. He was at the event on uh, Saturday. Uh, himself and Stephen Mooney showed up at one point. Ironically, when the whiskey showed up. So, <laughs> I don't know what that says. But, so, at this particular event, we had a lot of the Dublin press people uh, take part in this. So, Lightning Strikes Comics would be an independent Irish publisher that has been doing a number of anthologies for a couple of years. Recently, they published a Phantom one-shot, uh, written by Stephen Mooney and drawn by Rob Carey. But they've also done various other things. So, you had Kieran Mark Antonio with Red Sands, which is his Mad Max meets uh, 30 Days and Nights. Uh, it's kind of a vampire epic where it's that kind of desert wasteland with a vampire twist on it. You had Hugo Boylan, who does a webcomic called Superhero Help Desk, which, which is sort of dealing with the sort of aftermath of what happens in a superhero world, sort of background thing. So what Powerless kind of was trying to do to an extent. Uh, you had Katie Fleming, who does a lot of interesting stuff. One of her main books she, she was she was uh, plugging at that event was, uh, as she described it, it's about LGBT worlds and really that's all about it really is. Uh, but you have a lot of different creators doing a lot of interesting work and particularly what was really cool about Small Press Day this year was that there was a number of panels so it went from 11 o'clock to 6 o'clock and from 12 o'clock onwards there was a panel every hour talking about a different aspect of comic creation and basically a do-it-yourself do guide to how to get your comics out there. So the first panel talked about uh, artwork and colouring as a form of storytelling in comics uh, it went on to talk about how to get your comic from inception to in people's hands. And then there was stuff about script writing, how to use social media to promote your comic. And all these kind of different ways of expressing yourself. And, and the event was really there to encourage people to that and to get the message home that there is no barrier to entry in comics anymore. Whether it's online, whether it's in print media, you can make your own comic and you can make whatever kind of com comic you want. Comics are for everyone, and there's going to be an audience for you somewhere. They might not be the biggest audience, but somewhere, somewhere is interested in the story that you have to tell. And whether it's a subversive take on a superhero thing, or a very personal story about growing up as a marginalized community, or anything like that, these are all sort of themes that are being explored throughout the day and throughout our, our creators. And they're producing, like, maybe I'm biased because they're the whole team but they're producing some fantastic stuff and a lot of these guys a lot of big names started off doing stuff like this so will slimey started off with these sort of independent publishing so did Declan shabby so did stephen mooney all these these guys who are now working for the big companies and are putting out lots of quality material started off in these sort of small press home-brewed industries and something that i think is quite important and that i'd like to see expand beyond Ireland and the UK, because I know that there are those voices out there and that there are people who want to see that diversity in comics that you don't necessarily get from the main publishers. And this is where you're going to get it. And this is where we can foster that community and really do something interesting and promote the craft comics as something other than just superheroes. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love my superhero comics, but I'd hate it if that was all it was. Talk about the venue. This sounds like a convention to me. Uh, how big was the venue? What's the name? The Fumbali Exchange? Is that where it was? Yeah, the, Fum the Fumbali Exchange. It's kind of 
like um, community center slash art gallery. It was like one of the guys there said this is was a comics convention in the old sense where it was purely about the medium and purely about the craft. It was a comics festival, a comic convention for creators and for would-be creators. And so it had that sense of an convention from years gone by, he, he said. The venue itself, the, like the exhibition area where the people were hawking their wares and trying to get you to buy all sorts of things, uh, that was reasonably large. There was probably about 22 exhibitioners throughout the day and each had their own big t- table they were able to spread out whether they were an artist or a writer, their printed material, they were selling print artwork or whatever. And then upstairs was where there was almost like, it was a classroom essentially, where the panels were held. So throughout the day, there probably would have been a couple of hundred people passed through. Maybe maybe that might be exaggerated, but it might have been a hundred pe- people or just over a hundred people passed through throughout the day. But because we had that classroom and because those panels were on there, you had a core group of 30, 20, 30 people who were there consistently to engage, getting to know people, talking to people, exchanging business cards, exchanging tips, getting phone numbers, like really kind of fostering a, commu- a true comics community that you don't see too often anymore. And it's something that I really, really loved about the event. Yeah, a lot of the conventions these days are getting bought up. Uh, so they're more and more corporate and they're going after the bigger celebrities and autographs. And, and that's how they make most of their money is with the celebrities now. And Artist Alley, uh, I was talking about that with Anthony when he went to Megacon. I was like, Artist Alley in Orlando is more about people that are selling crafts than people selling comic books. And when I was in Chicago, and, and I'm sure I'm sure that they're letting more and more people in, but there is a huge comic book scene in the Midwest. So a Chicago convention is usually 90% all comic book writers and artists pitching their wares and there's a waiting list to get into artist alley in Chicago. So I've been used to this like full blown like artists and there's like in Chicago, there's a couple events where like everybody just gets together and there's like, we're going to drink and draw. And, and so there's a pretty solid community there. I like that other places are doing that. I live here in Florida now and everything's spread out. And I talk to people I was like, Hey, is there a drink and draw? And they're like, no, half of us live in Tampa. Some of us live in Clearwater, some of us in Pete. So everybody's too far out. Nobody really wants to, have that communal thing. I love that this grassroots thing, and you already mentioned the whiskey poured at this event as well. So when you get artists together and they're socializing and drinking, like you have some of the craziest ideas ever. What was the best part of small press day for you? Well, I think the panels were fantastic, particularly at the script writing panel, really kind of got to nitty gritty of for writers. And as someone who has dabbled in writing comments in the past, realizing that really you are nothing the artist is doing all the heavy heavy lifting thing so they probably know a lot more than you so listen to your artists but it was i was really but really the kind of best part of small press day was exactly what you were saying it was that community and it's something that ireland in particular has always tried tried to to do with its artistic scene and its comic scene so we have those drink and draws we have those writers meetups but this was that on a larger scale and allowed people to come from all across the country, whether it's from back home in Cork or from north of the border or anything like that. But I think it was just that ability to talk to people who understood and you didn't feel like you had to sort of preface everything you said by, oh, well, comics are this, this and this. People understood what comics are capable of and so you could talk with them on that level. I love this. I 
I agree with you. I think that this is something that needs to spread out of Ireland and the UK. I'd love to see something like this over here because I can't think of anything like it that we have. I mean, I the one big comics day a year that we have is free comic book day. And that that goes over with you guys as well. That's not exclusive to the US. And it still doesn't really seem to capture the same vibe. So I'd love to see if we can get a movement like this going over here. Like it's fantastic. I think what helped as well because because the events were sponsored, table space was free. So it really encouraged artists to get off their ass and come out and showcase their words. They, they didn't have to worry about am I actually going to make my money back at the end of the day if I spend 30 or $30 on this table, am I going to sell that amount? And it just allowed them to get the name out there. And you're talking about one location that you just delved into, but this is this is bigger than that, right? Because I know another writer for our site, Nick Enquist, who was on the show last week, is in London right now. And you said on Facebook there was a shop he was at, and you said, oh, they are participating in Small Press Day as well. Yeah, that was Orbital Comics in London. So... Ireland. So are they like streaming? Are they like streaming the panels and all of these other shops and stuff? Oh no, no! Each shop was doing their own thing. This just happened oh. to be the Irish pan, the Irish like contingent. So every single shop across Ireland and the UK that was participating. So there was more shops doing stuff in the UK than there was in Ireland, uh, just by virtue of size and how many shops there are comparatively. But each shop was doing their own thing. So it might have been just a signing for that shop, or it might have been a panel or a workshop or something like that. But what I really, really liked about what we were doing over here, what the lads were doing over here was that it was everything. It was the signing, it was the panels, it was the exhibition. And that depends on the size of your community. You can do something small, you can do something big, but it's all linked and everyone's all tweeting about it and it's all being shared. And we, you get the hashtag trending and everyone sees what everyone else is doing. They might not be able to experience it, but they get to see it. And I think those panels were recorded, so they're probably going up at some point somewhere. So they were very good learning experiences for anyone who's interested in just making your own comics. And like really, like all credit has to go to the lads, Kieran, Wayne, Paul and Scott, who really did all the heavy lifting to get that stuff going and to organize the day because it was fantastic. And I didn't hear a bad word said about it. Was there a creator that you met at this event that you're like, you have to go check out their stuff now, whether it be a writer or an artist that you were just like had a great conversation with or, you know, had an interesting view on the comic book industry that you're like, this guy's pretty awesome or girl. One in particular, I think he's an artist. His name is Kevin Keane. And I would have met him once or twice back home because in Cork we had a comic creator meetup sort sort of thing where writers and artists have come together and you might get collabs and stuff. But Kevin Keane is an artist who is slowly working his way into the mainstream. And this guy needs to be working at Marvel or DC in the next couple of years because the level of detail he puts into some of his sequential work and his prints, whether it's his own original material or whether it's Daredevil Wolverine, like it's astounding. And he's a guy who has always been very encouraging of me, whether it's from the journalist side of things or whether it's from the creator side of things. And between himself, Kieran and Wayne, who were also very, uh, very much involved in the Irish comic scene over here, but they were just so encouraging, and they all have their own books that they're putting out. Uh, I think Kieran and Kevin have a, their own graphic novel coming out towards the end of this year, and I think they're ones to watch. Sorry, Kieran and Kevin have their own uh, 
as we all know, grappling up coming up this year. But I think Kevin Keane in particular is one to watch uh, because he is Ireland's next great artist. And I'm on Kevin's Twitter handle right now, and his Twitter handle is at Kevin Keen 24 And in his descriptions, says artist of the guards and neon skies. And I'm looking at his Moon Knight right now, and it's pretty sick. And then he has a Batman up there right on his Twitter handle right now. That is pretty awesome. And yeah, it all this stuff right now I'm looking at that I'm seeing is black and white. It's just his inks. And uh I just love the use of space that he used on this moon night. And just with his cape, he makes like a a half moon is the cape. And you can see the city and everything else is blacked out. And moon night is, is done really well. I would follow him on Twitter and check out his work because it's pretty awesome. He does a fantastic John Wick that uh, I managed to pick up a nice print of. And we got a few minutes left. Why don't you talk about Black Bolt? Black Bolt's got a series of Marvel comics right now. This guy doesn't talk. How is this a good comic book? It does very interesting things with panel structure in terms of that. Normally we think of panels almost like these sort of Tetris blocks that yeah, you have a certain amount of them, you fit them into the page. But he, but the artist Christian Ward and the writer like Sally and End, they're doing very interesting things. They're angling panels, they're warping panels so that you fit a lot more information into the page. But it also helps. So this series essentially is that Black Bolt has been imprisoned in an intergalactic supermax of sorts that nobody knows about except the Inhumans royal family and select cosmic deities because, you know, of course they do. And he's been imprisoned there unjustly and he's got to find his way out. And it's funny that you say like Black Bolt doesn't have a voice in this. Uh, it's always one of those weird, in, you know, that interesting thing of Black, about Black Bolt is that people have talked about Black Bolt's feelings, but he's never got to experience to show them himself. Because if he does, that has disastrous consequences. And because this prison has a power dampener, it allows him to speak for the first time. And so you see him speak, and you see him someone who's very economical with his words. He very much says the minimum amount because he knows how dangerous his voice can be. And I've never been a big fan of the royals or the humans overall. I, well, I, I thought, thought sometimes they'd be interesting villains or they're interesting characters. They often seem very much, as, as a royal family, seem quite arrogant and hard to relate to or to understand in that sense. And this really kind of like gets down to the idea of like what it means to be a king when your kingdom has forgotten you or when you're away from your kingdom. Like what makes a king and why do people follow them? So one of his fellow prisoners is Crusher Creel, the Absorber Man. And so there's a bit of a nice playoff between the two, where you have this guy who's a thug and speaks in a very sort of down-to-earth, no-nonsense way. And Blackbolt, who's struggling to come to terms with that, with that sort of communication full stop and to understand innuendos and that sometimes people don't say what they mean and that sometimes people will embellish things and he doesn't really understand that. He's like, like, you should let me, when something happens, he's like, why haven't you let me in this plan? He doesn't get it. Like, because <laughs> communication is of, of that kind is voluntary. He just relies on emotion and understanding someone by looking in their eye. But what does, does that mean when someone is looking at you through warped eyes? So it's an interesting setting to, to have to, 
unite with these other criminals to get free and to do and in doing so understand what makes a king and i particularly liked this latest issue issue three because it featured a guest appearance from one of my favorite marvel characters uh, death's head yes so, plus death's head and anthony you can go from there sorry i didn't mean to cut you off sorry. no my whole thing was i i put my foot down recently and i was and I, I have not been reading any of the new x-men or inhumans books because they all spun out of inhumans versus x-men and because usually when you have a big event and then a bunch of books come out from that it's it screams marketing instead of good storytelling so what is so is this like is this the gem is black belt like the gem in the rough here this is this the one book if if, if i swore off these books is this the one book that i need to be checking out right now i mean the x book x-men books like the core two have been quite good but if you're looking for something that's really doing something different in the medium, yeah. then I really think Black Bolt is that book. I think it's a bit like Black Panther was last year in that it was trying to push the envelope and do something different from within the, the big two. And I think that's what Black Bolt is doing this year. So I think for Black Panther, and to an extent, though, not, not on the same level what Vision was doing last year in Marvel, I think Black Bolt's trying to do something similar. And I know how much you love Vision. So the best. And I was hoping that, we were going to make it through an episode without saying the vision. I mean, I was just hoping that we were going to make it through the episode. <laughs> no, we need a weekly vision notice until you read it, Matt. <laughs> As a director's cut, that's all we're saying. Yeah. I've heard of this director's cut. Is there anything else that we should be reading, Gary? So coming out next week, the big two books that are coming out are obviously the sequel to Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2 which finally reveals the plotline after five years of who was the other Miles Morales. So I'm not sure. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm not sure if it'll be satisfying, but I'm looking forward to it. And for DC, there's Dark Days, the casting, which is the next prelude to Dark Knight's Metal. But I think two books are coming out next week that are from the kind of indie side of things. So to go back to me unearthing hidden gems the entire time, there are two books that are limited series so you can be able to pick them up easily enough uh so there's the third issue of free freeway fighter which is a titan book essentially in the vein of mad max based on the old fighting fantasy series and it's just a very engaging read about someone who's trying to survive in that world that has very much mad max fury road vibes off it so it's something that i think people who enjoy that setting will get a quick kick out of and the other one is Blood Bowl, which is also from Titan Comics, but that's based on the board game uh, about the kind of fantasy NFL, or fantasy NFL being orcs and goblins versus humans, rather than, you know, the one you play at work every year. <laughs> awesome. Good stuff. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Lads, it's a pleasure uh, to finally get to talk to you. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, Where can people find you on social media, Gary? So on Twitter, I'm Gary Maloney 42 because 42 is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> and you can find my comic articles and my pieces of comic journalism over at monkeysfightingrobots.com. Uh, I write under the name Gary Maloney. I can't wait to talk to you next month because this was very interesting. I talk to everybody through Facebook, and it's all messaging. But now I finally get to see some of your personality. I see it in your writing and your work, but actually physically hear your personality was uh very engaging and 
and your passion for comics is amazing. So I'm super excited to actually have this conversation with you. And, and thanks again for coming on. Uh, lads, I can't wait to talk to you again. There's a DC book coming out this week. And you're going to have to. There are several. Yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. Oh, there's several books. Yes, it's Wednesday, DC. Uh, but there, there's a book that said a lot of things this week that I need you to explain what the heck is going on in the world of the DC universe, and you need to talk about it. You need me to explain it? Well, then we're going to have some problems. But what we have is Dark Days, the casting, issue one. This is book two in the prelude to Metal. Uh, it's written by Scott Snyder with James Tinney in the fourth. You got art from Jim Lee. Uh, I think it's Adam Kubert, right? Not Andy Kubert. Or is it? Uh, I think it might, my back, it's Andy Kubert, I think. And it is Andy Kubert. And John Romita Jr. Um, and this is a follow-up to The Forge, which came out a few weeks ago. You and I got to interview Scott Snyder about it on episode one of this podcast. Uh, and it is, it's, it's a true blue Batman mystery story where he is trying to, he's following this, this mystery of this metal, and it's the nth metal, if you're familiar with DC lore. It's popped up a hundred times. No one's really ever explained it. And Snyder is kind of going back through the years, and he's hitting on all of these major Batman stories that we've had over the last you know decade or two, and he's weaving this mystery through them, and he's tying in all of the major DC players, and uh, metal is going to be a huge huge event from the looks of it okay so we're getting started here and right now i'm gonna say that there's gonna be spoilers after this because i have to know what the heck is going on and i'm hoping that anthony knows what the heck's going on because i just wrote down a whole bunch of stuff the hawk <laughs> the hawkman stuff that's not happening in real time that's just all that's past correct he's narrating he's narrating he's the one who like first kind of because he he was almost like the discoverer of the nth metal, but is in, in a, in a okay. So, but is Hawkman in continuity now, or is he gone? So I was a little confused by that as well. Because he's in continuity, he has shown up like he was in the New Fifty Two, and like he had his own book. Hawkman should be around. He's around as far as I know. But at the end of this book, he kind of walks into a portal, and uh, maybe disappears. Like I, I know that with Rebirth, they're kind of undoing some things with the New 52, but I don't think they would write Hawkman out completely. Okay, um, and then Batman and Wonder Woman talking. They're talking about the eighth metal. That, and yeah, that, so I guess, there are ver- I guess there are different versions of the nth metal, where I guess like the eighth metal might be a little bit diluted. It's not like the purest form of the metal. Okay. Okay, okay. That's okay. what I got from it. I Well, that's what... She mentioned that. They, they actually say that. Uh, Scott yeah. Snyder said that this was not a crisis event, but he did use the words dark crisis in this book. So again, I'm, I'm going to call again, some bullshit. Again, he used the word on, crisis in the forge, and now he's using it again in the casting, but he says it's not a crisis. So I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. And then the Green Lantern Joker stuff. I'm trying to figure out what the heck's going on there because there's I don't I haven't read a lot of Batman, but I know that okay I read the issue where Batman and the Joker like pass out in a cave because they killed each other, right? That's what happened, right? Yeah, that was back in in New Fifty Two at the end of um, End Game, I believe. Was it the end of End Game or was that the end of? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was at the end of End Game where Joker and Batman both die 
before being resurrected. And then everybody shit a brick because um, Commissioner Gordon became Batman after that. Right. And I don't, I kind of skipped over because I knew Batman would eventually come back at some point in time. But how did Batman come back or did they figure out how he came back? So this is all, this is all what's tying into metal. So it's a, it's a great transition, a great topic to talk about. So at the end of Death of the Family, which was Snyder and Capullo's third arc in the new 52, uh, Joker like falls down this giant crack in the Batcave. And you think he's dead. Like he just he just he's, he falls down this huge crevice. Um and then he appears later fully healed. Because you remember he had cut his face off. So like Yes, no his, face. His, no face Batman. Right. Or Joker. His face is back. He seems healthy. He seems like like younger and more energetic than ever. Um and he claims to be immortal. What you find out is that there is a pool of something called Dionysium, like under the back cave. And it has healing properties. It's what the Court of Owls used for their talents. It's what healed the Joker. And when Batman and Joker die, Dionysium is what brings them back. Albeit they have their memories wiped. So there's like that whole, when when, it, when Jim Gordon is Batman, Bruce doesn't even remember being Batman. Like his memory is wiped during that time period. Okay, um, so Batman had the metal go over him and that's what brought him back. Correct. And the Dionysium is, as I say in the casting, um, again, part of this whole metal conspiracy, this nth metal conspiracy that keeps popping up in Batman's life. Okay, and then they inter- they don't introduce, but they reintroduce a Jack Kirby character, Dublex. His name is a play on the double helix structure for the DNA, who kind of explains some things to Batman. But then he shows up dead like two seconds later. So I was very confused about what happened there. Yeah, he kind of just popped in and out. Can't really explain it myself. He was just kind of there. And then I think Talia killed him because we get Talia al Ghul in here. I think he's already kind of on his way out when he first sees Batman. Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. Like if he was like a hologram or something that they kind of brought in that he was talking to. No, he's not a hologram. He's definitely a solid body. It just when he's coming out of that cave, he looks like he's kind of limping and already injured, and then he just kind of he he says his exposition and then just kind of collapses. And right before that, they cheat. They uh, right before that, they tease the challenge challengers of the unknown. Is that what the book's called? Challengers of the unknown. Yeah, it's like Hawkman and Shaira kind of uh, in the past. I guess had this you know challengers of the unknown group where they were trying to solve things. But that is know. a character that, that that book. I thought they were bringing back. I thought Snyder. They are. Chase. I think I think Snyder might even be working on it. Um, don't don't quote me on that. You'd have to go back and listen to our interview with him. Yeah. So he comes out of the wherever he comes out of this bad part of where Hawkman blew everything up, and so he says a few things. He goes panel, and then the next panel, he's just on the ground. And yeah, he just passes out. He just passes. I guess he just passes out. Yeah, you know how characters do that. They're like they're dying, but they have just enough time to say the important. Oh, but stuff Talia they need they... does say he fought so bravely to prevent me from taking my birthright. I almost pitied the creature. Yeah, so I said Talia. Talia killed him. But then it just gets. It just gets weird because then like 
Bruce it's a little convoluted. Bruce and Bruce I will, and, I'll grant you this. Bruce and Talia are talking about their kid, and but they're kind of pseudo talking about their kid. And the father of my son, the daughter of my enemy, like all this crazy stuff. And then she busts out some little tiny knife from Shazam. That's well, the knife from earlier. Well, it's the knife they've been talking about all issue long. Yeah. But it's revealed that it's Shazam. Wait, you knew that earlier, didn't you? When when they ha- I, that was my, one of my favorite parts of this book is when you have that Hawkman um, flashback and he talks about how you have, you know, the immortals and you've heard lore of like the rhyming demon, meaning Etrigan, and the man as old as America, who I think is Vandal Savage, and like when no one had ever brought them together. Um, and one of these beings, he just he mentions being a wizard, and there's all this talk of lightning. Like I knew that, like yeah, that that was that's clearly Shazam. <laughs> And the truth had hit us like lightning. I wasn't, I'm not a huge Shazam. Like, I don't know really too much about Shazam. Like, I know there's, like, yeah. you know, there's there's Black Adam who rips people in half in, in a crisis book. And that's what I thought was entertaining. He was crazy. Tear <laughs> down all that was light in the world and drag it into the darkness. I knew they were talking about Vandal Savage. Because of Legends of Tomorrow and how dumb that character is. God, Vandal Savage is such an annoying character. Do not bring down this podcast by mentioning that show. Uh, I had such hopes for that one. So did I. Uh, but okay, so you have... But they talked about the Immortals. So the guys in the red cape, the red suits, those are not the Immortals. Or are they no, those were, are the Immortals. Those, those are. are the immortals. So yeah. they talked about... So one's Vandal Savage, one's Raza Ghoul. One one's Shazam. The, one's the wizard, because they didn't say Shazam. Okay, but it's Shazam. The wizard is Shazam? Yeah. See, this is what confuses me about Shazam. Like, I know so that you the, say Shazam, so the wizard and then Shazam. you become Captain the Marvel. Shazam, and Billy Brad, not Billy Braddock, <laughs> Billy Batson stumbles upon the wizard, and then the wizard grants him the powers of Shazam, his power. But the wizard's gotta, not named Shazam. It, he is, or at least he's... You gotta remember that for the longest time, Shazam wasn't Shazam. He was Captain Marvel. Like, it wasn't until recently that we started calling him Shazam. Oh, he's now called Shazam now, too? Yeah, in the New 52, they rebranded him as Shazam. Because nobody understood what the heck was going on. Like, I'm gonna say Shazam, and Shazam's gonna show up, but he's not Shazam. He's Captain Marvel. But yeah, those are all the immortals. I would assume. Yeah, but there's they, a lot of other immortals in the background, and so far we've only named we've only we got Vandal Savage, Razagul, a wizard, and apparently his name is Shazam, not the wizard. I would assume one of them because they mentioned the rhyming demon, so I would assume one of them is Jason Blood or Etrigan. It's Thirteen of them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I don't know. Maybe yeah, we'll 13. find There's out in Challenges of, of the Unknown. There's 13 of the Immortals. Oh, I'm so I think conf- we know the important ones. I think the the important ones, I think, are just the Hawk people, Shazam, and Rachel Ghoul, I think, are the important ones. Uh, it's not Raza Ghoul? Oh, no, it's Raish. Because I'm, I'm uh, pretentious like that. Oh, that's nice of you. Uh, I think it is actually Raish, to be honest. I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh, really? I don't know. Have you seen the Batman Returns? Or, or Batman, Batman Begins, whatever the name of the show is, movie. Uh, have you have you watched a little show called Batman: The Animated Series? I think where they call him Raish. I think anyway, I think they call him Raish in that show. 
Uh, and John Romita Jr. cannot draw Batman or Wonder Woman. So if he could please stop, that'd be awesome. So I didn't, that's a problem with this book. I didn't, I don't mind the three artists because they had them doing three different things. Like Hubert was doing the Hawk people stuff. John Romita was following Batman out in the wild and Jim Lee was doing the Batcave stuff. I did not like towards the end of this book where they started weaving everyone together. Like there's, there are three pages at one point where it's three different artists, just like back to back to back all in the Batcave. Like, 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 like it's Jim Lee in the Batcave. And then all of a sudden John Romita's in the Batcave. There was no, and there was no like transition. It's kind of jarring. For as much as I like Jim Lee, I'm not a big fan of how he's drawing the Joker right now. He, um, yeah, I'm not. I love Jim Lee. I love him. He's one of my favorite Batman artists. But yeah, even even like in Hush, I wasn't the biggest fan of his Joker. I don't know what the Joker's missing. Like, there's a couple panels where it's decent, but then I'm just like, it's not that. It's not that good. And then we don't even know if that is the Joker. And that's another thing where I'm like, what the heck is going on? See, but this book has done this and the forge before it have done their job. They have piqued your interest for metal. So now you're like, I need these answers. Oh, and all metahumans are have the metal in them. That uh, yeah, I think so. Again, according to the Joker, which I don't fucking trust at all. Which even Batman says at the end of the book, like the Joker lies. And then the final panel. And this has totally reminded me of a crisis event, by the way. The way that, even if you, if you read the, I'm, I can't, I'm blanking on the what the crisis was. It wasn't Final Crisis. I think it was Infinite Crisis. Where, wasn't that where like old Superman came over? Yeah. Well, the, not the, came, not came over, but like they they were in like that time rift, and then they came out of it. Yeah, yeah. they were in like whatever you know little shuttle they were in. Mm-hmm. That's totally how the final panel feels to me, where it says the dark nights are coming. And I was like, and then you look at them, I was like, this reminds me of a little crisis event that I was witness to about 12 years ago. (laughs) It's kind of similar in that, I mean, it's no secret. It's not a spoiler. Scott Snyder has talked about it. Like metal is about a whole new universe. You know, it's the dark multiverse. So it is, in a sense, beings from another uh, universe coming through a rift in reality. So th- there is a parallel there. You, you're not wrong to kind of see a, a, a parallel. And one of them has a Wonder Woman insignia on them. One of them has a Batman insignia. And then the other two, I have no clue. One, I mean, I could say one's a Flash. But I don't. if you bring Flash in this universe, it's going to mess everything up. So I'm glad Flash is not in it because he brings in a whole set of problems on his own. He will be. He'll be in metal. They're all going to be in metal. And the true father of Batman? Yeah, I would have to assume that that's a spiritual father or something, not a blood father. Okay. Um, I don't really want to talk about Spider-Man at all, but you know, I fucking hate the totem. I know you have fucking hate. Can we need a sound effect in this podcast for whenever we bring up Spider-Man that we could just like hit an alarm? Just like it's kind of like in the movie show when you whenever you guys bring up Batman v Superman and you just kind of like sound the alarm. But if they bring the totem, if they bring in if they bring in a totem that like oh Bat Bruce Wayne, it wasn't the events of his parents getting killed. He was always destined to be Batman. I'm gonna be like, come on guys, stop rewriting history. 
supposed to be additive, not, you know, retractive, well, redactive. It might be because, again, Snyder has said that he is tying metal. He's going to weave all these Batman stories together through metal, not just his run, but Grant Morrison's run as well. And there is a lot of reference here to Grant Morrison's run. I think specifically the return of Bruce Wayne after Final Crisis, where Bruce got like shot back in time and then had to like work his way through. I think that's what a lot of this um, imagery is is coming from. And I think there is something to do, not only if it's, if it's totems exactly, but like gods or spirits or something. I'm going to be, okay, I'm going to be honest here. This is kind of my, um, my coming out on this. I don't like Grant Morrison's Batman. I don't. So like I've, I've read snippets of it here and there. I've tried to get into it. I haven't read the return of Bruce Wayne, but I have read about it and I've tried to fill myself in on it. And a lot of this imagery of like bats in caves from like far back in time, I'm pretty sure that's all pulled from Morrison's Return of Bruce Wayne. No, I read Return of Bruce Wayne. Grant Morrison's batshit crazy, but there was there was one issue where Batman is buried in a coffin and he breaks out and the, the conversation he has in his head is that he's prepared himself for this event of getting buried and he knows exactly how much power he needs to exert to break a coffin that's underground and he knows how much how many pisses like it, it was one of these conversations where it's like oh my god it's the longest conversation about how he's prepared but i was like this is batman right there this is what he does like he prepares for every possible outcome it's the ultimate like chess conversation of like oh you know i need to do this many push-ups to dig myself out of the ground if i got buried by this or this or this but there is a panel where they do show a Batman getting killed, and it looks like he's getting shot with an Omega Beam. Mm-hmm. And then there's one with a, a GCPD on it, Gotham City PD on it, and then the red Batman emblem. I'm not sure who that guy is. And then there's one way in the background that looks like he's getting eaten by a monster. But these were all, like, dreams that Bruce had. So there's Batman's getting killed in alternate universes. Yeah. Which could be the dark and- universes. I really so this this issue was kind of muddled and confusing more so than the forge was the forge seemed a little bit more straightforward than the casting is but I do like that like the, like these two issues and then metal are going to be action packed like they're going to be big blockbuster kind of stories but I love that beneath that this is like a, as I said earlier it's like a true blue batman mystery story it's a this is a thinking man's batman story even though I it's got like so. all the big guys. I, so I like hope that. so. I'm a little worried, and because we've talked with Scott, and I feel I wonder if he's giving us misdirections. But he's like, it's gonna be awesome riding dinosaurs and everything like that. And I was like, oh, I was like, because when Wonder Woman gives him the flaming sword, I was like, oh, we're weaponizing. We're gonna build up things that we need to defend defend the universe against. And then he gives it away right away, and I was like, damn it, that was you were supposed to hold on to that shit. Well, you need to check out, follow Greg Capullo on Twitter because he has been sharing his artwork from Metal and it does look big. Like, like it looks like they're in like gladiator outfits in like an arena and stuff. So I definitely think that that is, um, that's going to be an element of it. I don't think you have to worry about that. I think there is going to be like, you know, the big gladiatorial flaming swords kind of battles. And I see you're pulling it up right now. Immediately. Uh, immediately. Yeah, if you're not following Greg Capullo on Twitter, what are you, what are you doing? Because he shares artwork all the time, and it's great. I am, I am. I that's why I got there right away. 
I wasn't talking to you. I was just talking to our audience about how they should be following Greg Capullo on Twitter. And then, yeah, there's so much. Oh, it looks like your boy's showing up. Which boy is that? I have many boys. Your little Green Lantern, Ion. Kyle Rayner? Yeah. It looks oh, like yeah, he man. has the Ion outfit on. I mean, it just could be early pencil sketches, but I was like... It's gonna be it's gonna be star studded. It is gonna be a huge event with like all of the. I mean, they even said like they're they've already just in these two issues we've seen random pulls like Mister Miracle and Mister Terrific, and we're getting Plastic Man and like they they're doing it big. And why do they gotta start drawing uh, Aquaman like uh, what's his face from the Justice League movie? Um, I, I you know when I read. When I, read, when I read The Forge, issue one, it kind of took me by surprise because Aquaman had not looked like that in his own book yet. Uh, but that issue of Aquaman, I think, that came out like right at the same time, maybe that same week, he does start to get that look. Uh, so, yeah, I guess they're... It, it's it's the industry, man. It's the industry. It's what they got to do. They got to they make the things industry, line up. That's the industry, man. That's the industry. They got, which, I don't, I'm not, I, which I don't care for. I like clean-shaven Aquaman, but... No, it's just weird. Doing. I keep waiting for him to give him the tan and the darker hair because there's one right now. I'm looking at one of one of Capullo's one that he did right now, and he looks exactly like him, but he's white. Like it's, it's just, it doesn't work. Wait until they turn Atlantean into Dothraki. Yeah, <laughs> and I wouldn't say it's because it's white. It's because he's blonde. That's the that's what's going on. If he had the dark hair, he would look. Exactly like Jason Moma, 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 Moomin. He's gonna he's gonna dye his hair in the comics right before Justice League comes out. He's like, hey, metal's coming out. I gotta go dark hair, dark hair. Let's do this. I'd love for they're gonna write it in there somewhere. Like during metal, he's gonna be like hit by some beam that doesn't affect him, but it makes his hair darker. Oh my god, that'd be hilarious. With just like blonde <laughs> highlights, it'd be perfect. Um, <laughs> how many monkeys and robots are you giving this thing, or how many monkeys? I'm giving it monkeys. Um. Uh, 3.75 3.75 monkeys i enjoyed it i am interested i really want to read metal um uh, scott snyder and james tenney are both great batman writers the art kind of took me out of it and uh it was a little convoluted but 3.75 just the scope of the book i appreciate all the work that went into it and i'm giving it 3.75 robots as well I thought you were going to go higher for a second. I was like, this week is weird. Like, usually you're the hard grader, and I'm uh, I'm always, like, you know, towers above you. Right, so rating. I'm on Twitter because I'm looking at Greg Poole's stuff, and uh, we're both baseball fans. Do you mm-hmm. think that, because uh, a uh, certain Aaron Judge is trending on Twitter, do you think he needs to take a steroids test? <laughs> no, I, I, I do not need to. We should say that we're recording this on Monday during the home run derby and we're missing it for your, for our amazing fans. No, I don't think Aaron judge need to take a steroid test. I think people need to, uh, appreciate talent and stop. Uh, not even appreciate talent. I think people need to stop immediately assuming the worst of people. I don't assume the worst of you, but I mean, you don't break Joe DiMaggio's record without, a little juice. I'm sure he's. I'm sure he's been tested. I'm sure he he'll be tested again. I'm sure if if he ever came back negative, I'm sure we'd find out about it. 
Uh, and this is really interesting for me to say because you and me were both were diehard Met fans, and I hate the Yankees with the passion for. So for me, defending you're the Aaron nicest right now. guy ever, man. I like I I've, <laughs> I've met some nice people in my day, but you, my friend, are are one of the nicest people because you just you know you just uh, thanks. That means so much to me. I'm uh, I, I I like the benefit of the doubt. I just I I believe in innocent until proven guilty. Apparently, he's putting on a show in the home run derby. I'll have to watch it. When, once, once we sign off, I'm going to run home and put that on. <sighs> well, I just got on my steroid soapbox. Do you want to get on your soapbox and talk about comic industry? Yeah, I do. I'm getting on, I'm getting on Stan's soapbox this week, as we've decided to uh, call this segment. And Scott Snyder, we just talked a lot about metal. Scott Snyder went on Twitter this week, and he said that DC was going to charge $4.99 a book for metal. But they saw the support that fans have been giving over the last year since the start of Rebirth, and they have lowered the price to $3.99 per comic under 30 pages or something like that. But they lowered the price in appreciation. I want to talk about that because I think that's great, and I think that it just further shows how DC is supporting their fans right now in a way that Marvel isn't, and we've talked about that over the last few weeks. Moreover, I want to talk about just comic prices in general because uh, they're too damn high. It's insane, the prices of comics, and you're someone who has a background in the retail industry. You owned a comic shop, uh, so I'm interested to get your perspective on this. We, we're seeing that comics can be sold cheaper. When DC did Rebirth, they said we're lowering all of our books to 2.99 an issue. And granted they're doing them twice monthly now so they're really making like 6 bucks 6 bucks a month, but they they're still they're not going to lose money on a single book. So they're showing that they can print and sell a book for 2.99 with like you know their glossy paper and everything else. So the fact that you know Marvel is out there selling the same size books for 4.99 uh, really, really grinds my gears. Marvel has always been higher priced than DC. The same size trade has always been cheaper from DC than from Marvel, whether it be three to five bucks. If you if you go to the bookstore right now and you look at trades, DC has stuff at at fifteen ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine, where Marvel had that stuff at nineteen ninety nine, and that's just been how Marvel's been. And I, I don't know the philosophy behind it. I don't know if Marvel pays their artists or writers or their staff more than DC. There is a lot of factors. Uh, I don't know printing costs. I don't shipping. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple to figure out. But somehow DC has figured out a more cost-effective way of printing a book and getting it out there. And I don't know what they've cut out of the equation. Maybe it's moving from New York to L.A., and consolidating offices that could be you know using some of Warner Brothers lots and so they're using less real estate expenses uh, that could be something there I mean there's a lot of factors with that uh, but the fact that DC recognizes that that could be an issue and is addressing it that is way smarter than what Marvel's doing right now and Marvel's not even trying to catch up like they haven't done anything of the like we have Marvel Legacy number one coming out and they're doing it for, you know, it's going to be $6 for a single issue. And I know it's going to be like a 50 page book or something like that, but like, shouldn't the incentive be, 
we want people to buy and read these books. We want to attract as many people to read good content. And you have guys like me who have a pull list at a local shop and I'm spending anywhere from 30 to $50 maybe in a given week on comic books, depending on um, how many books are out. And I, I, I cut, I'll, I'll try to cut books that are hitting that high price point. And, and event books are terribly guilty of that. And we know, again, they've shown us that they can sell these books at a lower price. So when they have a major event come out and all of a sudden they jack the price up, that's, that's just a turnoff to me. I feel like we should be motivating people to pick up comics, especially people who have not read them in a while or they want to get back into them or kids who want to get into comics. We should be trying to make this medium as accessible as as possible. And you have you have publishers out there like Alterna. They're they're Alterna Comics. They're 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 small little creator owned company. They sell their comics for like a dollar or a dollar ninety nine a comic. Granted again they're they're creator owned, they're small, so I'm sure that their overhead and whatnot isn't as crazy. Uh, and they're printing them on newsprint. They're not, you know, they're print, you know, in order to be able to get them out there. So there's, it's not, it's not an apples to apples comparison. But I would, with a DC or a Marvel book, I'd be willing to make that trade off. If you could knock a dollar or two off the cover price with like newsprint paper, I'd be okay with that. I mean, all my favorite Spider-Man are are newsprint paper. I mean, like it's. Uh, I, I don't know what the issue was or why they made the switch. Uh, if people were really choosing that one quality paper over another, I mean, cause the story and the, everything look, I, I get that one looks better, but one feels better. The newsprint still feels better to me than, than the glossy paper. And it smells better. That's like, that's like nostalgia right there. That's like growing up digging through long boxes and just smelling the musky paper. One, it sounds like Marvel. Marvel needs a different marketing and a different marketing department and a different accounting person. Say they sell a hundred copies of a book at six bucks, they're making six hundred dollars. But say they sell two hundred copies of the same book at four bucks, they're making eight hundred dollars. I mean, I there's math formulas to where you could figure out what you need to sell at a certain price to make a lot of money. And you, you can figure out what that sweet spot is. And they sure have enough data to analyze the trends and what's going on. And they can see exactly what DC has sold and what they have sold from the beginning of basically time. So you can figure out what's going on with this stuff. And you can figure out where you could cut costs to bring the price down and where you could make more money selling it at a lesser price if you put a little effort into it. It's there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if if DC can put out their 80-page Rebirth special for two ninety nine, and then for Marvel to come out with Marvel Legacy, which is a shorter book for five ninety nine, I mean, I'm not saying they had to put it out for two ninety nine, but they could have put it out for, you know, three ninety nine, four ninety nine, just like putting that five ninety nine on there, that's 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 high. That's a high for a comment even in today's market. And you have Marvel and you have DC and they're the biggest perpetrators of this, obviously. But and you can say that they're bigger companies, so they have bigger overhead and they gotta pay these guys more. And I wanna make sure writers and artists are getting paid their due. 
and colorists I, I, and letterers and, and colorists and letterers staff. and editors and every single person that makes a comic book wants them to be getting paid to do. But when you have these big companies like Marvel and DC, you're going to tell me that they don't have resources, companies owned by Disney and Warner Brothers who have these licenses where they're making these huge comic book movies every year. And I know that not all those profits are going back to the comic book guys, but but the, I just feel like they have more wiggle room, whereas like the indie people are the ones who might need to be charging a little bit more because they don't have the, those resources to be covering their costs like Marvel and DC might have. Well, that's what I was going to say. I much rather pay five bucks for a comic book from a artist or, or a writer or a creator at Artist Alley at a con because they're only printing 200 copies mm-hmm. or 300 copies to where Marvel's printing, you know, 500,000 and they're tossing them in every loot crate possible. I mean, like, and the other thing is Marvel and DC aren't, they partially sell to the fans, but part of their thing is getting retailers to buy stuff because I know you can return stuff, but not everybody returns everything. And so they don't care if a, a retailer gets stuck with dead stock. Yeah. I mean, you would know more about that than I would, you know, being someone who was who was in retail, uh, I do know that retailers, like you said, could send things back, but most of them probably opt to d- stuff them in a long box if it's a shop that has a lot of back issues or to sell them on eBay or something like that. It'll be interesting to see how DC and Marvel do as Marvel's relaunching their universe and DC is trying to do this kick-ass event. We're not going to solve this because the price of comics is something that fans complain about every single Wednesday when they go to their shop, and it's just something that needs to be talked about. I, what I think we can talk about is the fan responsibility in this. If you have a problem with the price of comics, if you do not think that Marvel should be getting away with charging five ninety nine for Marvel Legacy number one, don't buy it. Like I feel like fans... Just they fall in this pit where like they're like, I need to just be up on the continuity and I need to know what's going on and I need to follow this one specific character because I grew up with them and they just throw money at the wall. Then because they did that, because they say, well, I need to stay up on Marvel, so I'm going to spend $5.99 on Marvel Legacy number one. And then they do that and then they're like, well, now that I did that, I can't spend this money on these like image books or these creator, these, you know, smaller creator owned books because they just, you know, shot their wad on Marvel legacy. And that's, that's terrible. So I think there's fan responsibility here that people need to start, you know, growing up and just following and supporting the creators that they want to support and follow and the stories that they want to follow. And I feel kind of shitty saying this because Marvel legacy is being written by Jason Aaron, who I love. And he's a creator that I do support. I buy his creator own work, all the time and I buy his Thor and I bought his Doctor Strange and I support Jason Aaron because I love him and his work and it's not his fault that Marvel is charging five ninety nine for Mar- Marvel Legacy but I mean Marvel and DC and all these companies they listen to sales if, if Marvel Legacy comes out and it doesn't hit the sales numbers they want hopefully they'll have a wake up call and say hey maybe we shouldn't put a five ninety nine sticker on a book again I'm going to let the podcast end on your final words my friend I can't wait to talk to you next week about the next soapbox because you're you're building this podcast thing you got this going on oh that's great i'm glad i'm honored that to be uh, to be ending this episode on on my soapbox 
Have a good week. You too. Hey, Matt, we survived another episode. Oh, no! Once again, there are several ways to continue the conversation after the show. Follow us on Twitter at monkeys underscore robots. You can look at all our silly photos on Instagram at monkeys fighting robots. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Sardo. My co-host, Anthony, is also on Twitter at the underscore great underscore ace. The biggest compliment we receive is when the subscriber number goes up on Blog Talk Radio. If you have a chance, we'd greatly appreciate a review of our show on iTunes. As always, the best way to listen to the show is on our website, monkeysfightingrobots.com. That's Sergeant Deegan to you, poozer! You know what a poozer is, don't you, poozer? There are so many people that made the fourth episode of the comic show on Monkeys Fighting Robots a success. Special shout out to my co-host, Anthony Composto. I just want to add before we end, I want to send our condolences to Stan Lee, who lost his wife, Joan. May she rest in peace. And a special shout out to Gary Maloney, the Monkeys Fighting Robots beat reporter for checking in. Jessica Wynn is the designer of the Monkeys Fighting Robots logo, Are You a Monkey, Are You a Robot? The staff of Visual Realm built our website and keeps us up and running. To all my friends, family, and the interweb, thank you very much for your support. I'm Matt Sardo, and this is Monkeys Fighting Robots. <laughs>